Hey, I sure am, Joel, and uh, good morning to you and to everybody who is tuned in online or if you're watching this at some point in time later on. Good morning and Happy New Year to each and every single one of you as well. I am excited to be here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, as Joel mentioned, my name is Jordan. I have the privilege of serving here at Harvest as Youth Director, and I am especially excited this morning to open up God's Word with you for the first time in 2021. So if you've got a copy of God's Word with you, I'd invite you to open it to Philippians chapter 2 as we'll work through verses 12 through 18 together this morning. And as you are getting yourself ready for that, I have a question. I wonder... I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase, trust the process before. Have you heard that? Trust the process. Have you heard it before? It's actually been around for a number of years, but had some sort of resurgence as of late. And the idea behind the phrase is that there is a plan in place with a goal. And no matter how that plan is going at the moment that you find yourself in, you've got to stick to it and you've got to see it all the way through to the end in order for you to reach the result that you desire. Now, as I mentioned, it's had a resurgence as of late. And over the last five years, it's actually been a phrase that's been used by sports teams and specifically fans of sports teams as their team just wallowed in mediocrity. It's been a beacon of hope for them to grab onto that their team will one day return or reach the success that they hope for. For example, just a random example, completely picked out of nowhere. The Toronto Maple Leafs have been trusting the process since 1967. And it's clearly not been working for them over the last 50 or so years. But what has not worked for the Leafs does work when the process is in the hands of an almighty God who knows exactly what it is that he needs to do. And we understand that sanctification, that big Christian Bible word that you may have heard before, is the process of the renewing of our lives from our old sinful ways to the Christ-likeness that we desire for us to live in and God desires for us to live in by the working of the active Holy Spirit in our lives. It is the putting off of the old sinful self and the putting on of the new self that is found in the person and work of Jesus as described in Ephesians chapter 4. Or put elsewhere, Hebrews 9.14, sanctification is the purifying of our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is the process that all followers of Jesus are engaged in. This, the process of sanctification, is the process that we are called to trust. And it's a process that is described by the Apostle Paul in our passage this morning as the working out of our salvation. And the reality is, is that we are faced with decisions on a daily basis that measure and challenge our trusting of that process. Decisions that determine the extent of the blessings that we will experience based on how committed we are to the working out of our salvation. The amount of the fullness of joy we will experience by trusting the process that God engages all of us in. So let's come to the word of God now. Hopefully you've got it ready in front of you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. These are God's words to us this morning. Follow along with me as I read them. 
The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Great passage in front of us this morning. Excited to dive into it together. Before we do that, let's pray and ask God to do what he desires to do through his word this morning. Father, we thank you first and foremost for your sovereignty, your grace, and your mercy in our lives, for the way that you brought us through 2020. And as we stand, God, at the beginning of a new year and the representative blank slate that it is for all of us, we pray that you would do a work in each of our lives this morning through your word. We recognize, God, that while we are engaged in the process of sanctification, while you are doing the work that you desire to do in each of us, that has a certain amount of responsibility on our part. And so we pray, God, this morning that you would tune our hearts to yours. That as we stare into your very face, as we seek to grow in our understanding of who you are and what you call us to, we pray, Father, that you would meet with us in this place. That your word would go forth and do exactly what you have for it to do in all of us. So thank you, Father, for this time and for the chance to be gathered in this way. May it glorify and please you in every way. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the means by which our salvation is received. Amen. Amen. So if I am to experience the full joy of my salvation, I must trust the process that God has set up and make four clear choices to fully realize the joy of my salvation in the process of sanctification. See this first, I must choose obedience. Pretty simple, pretty good place to start. I must choose obedience. Look back down at verse 12 for a moment. See that first word there, therefore. Paul says, therefore. Now, don't worry, I promise we'll go through the passage a little bit faster than this, but it's important whenever you see a therefore to find out what it is there for. And in this case, Paul is taking Jesus's example of selfless sacrifice and humble obedience to call his Philippi, the Philippian believers to obedience. This is what we see in verses 5 through 11 and what we reviewed and discussed last week. So if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, with all of his glory and holiness, left all of that, taking the form of a servant, to come to this earth as a slave and obeyed, so also those who claim to follow him must do the same. But notice next how Paul calls the Philippian believers. He doesn't, he doesn't just stand like a, a military general barking orders at them. No, he appeals to them out of his love for them. So we see in these next few words, he, you can almost see him leaning in here to the Philippian believers, whispering these things to them, appealing to them as he says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's a great lesson for us there in those words, those of us who are parents, those of us who have the chance to be leaders of how we ought to lead as Paul appeals to them out of love. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, not perfectly, of course, but as you have established a pattern of obedience and an attitude of such, when I was with you, Paul says, not now, it is just as, if not more important, that you continue in those things when I'm not there. That you work out your own salvation in the same attitude and pattern of obedience that you had previously. This was not anything particularly new for the Philippians. They, they knew this stuff. Just like most sermons that you hear, especially if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, are not filled with some groundbreaking new information. But this is an important reminder. As it was for the Philippians, as it so is for us as well. Of things that we already know, but often forget and drift away from. Because simply put, Paul is calling the Philippians to act like they're saved. That they would live out the faith that they claim to have. That they would have that attitude and pattern of obedience at all times. That their salvation would translate into action because that is the reality of true saving faith. And herein lies the paradox of our salvation. Well, we understand that salvation, as in forgiveness, deliverance from the power of sin and death to the promise of abundant life now and eternal life to come, that comes to us by God's grace through faith. There's nothing that we can do to earn that. And in fact, that's not at all what Paul is advocating here. As in verse 13, he disproves that entirely when he says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, God alone does the work of salvation at the moment that we turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. And God does the active work of transforming and strengthening and equipping us for the good works that he desires for us to do. As he does the working of changing our hearts to align with his will and to fall in step with him to do the things that please him, there is still a critical active responsibility on the part of all Christ followers to carry the work of salvation out in our lives. Are you hearing this? This this is important. Paul says it right here that we work out while God works in our salvation. It's not an either or, it is a both and. It is a distinct pleasure that we have as human beings to be used by our almighty God for his purposes. And while there is no amount of human effort or energy that can accomplish what it is that God wants to do, we have the blessing of being used by God as he chooses to use human agents to do the will that he wants and for the purposes that he desires. Ralph Martin, in his commentary, sums it up this way. Nothing short of full cooperation 
with God's working confirms personal salvation. The inward reality of a heart that has been changed by the salvation received through the work of Jesus Christ is that it translates into outward action. Translates into a commitment to obedience. An active decision to keep our minds fixed on God and His ways, walking with Him in all that we are and do. You see, as has commonly been thought, obedience isn't just some reactionary response to temptation. In fact, it is an active, all-consuming state of mind that we need to be in. But the reality for most of us is that we lack the necessary discipline in our thought life to choose obedience when we need to, and that is where it starts. It ought to be in our lives that we are either actively engaged in some area of obedience toward God in some way, living out a command that he calls us to as we interact with the world around us, or it should be that we are actively meditating on, considering, thinking about, appreciating an aspect of who God is and what he's done for us. Because an undisciplined mind will be tossed to and fro by sinful desires. It will give in to temptation and consider nothing of the person and work of God. And an unguarded heart will sow the pleasures of the flesh and never choose obedience. It is roughly the same kind of lack of discipline That has resulted in some of you bailing on your New Year's resolution just three days into a new year. Or it is the same as as sitting down in front of the TV to watch an episode of that show you love, and all of a sudden, you're not one episode in, you're seven episodes in, it's now midnight, you haven't left the couch in five hours except to grab that second and then third bag of chips, and now you have to get ready for bed and be somewhat of a suitable member of society in just a few short hours. No judgment here. We've, we've all been there. But instead of just chalking this up to another year of missed opportunity and failing in resolutions, or instead of being tired and draggy the next day because you stayed up too late, the implications of being undisciplined in our obedience is we lose fellowship with God, We lose that closeness with him in our relationship that we desire. And instead of blessing in our life, God brings discipline to bring us back in step with him. Without the discipline necessary, we will never choose obedience. Which is why Paul clarifies the attitude that we ought to have as we engage in the process of sanctification, as we trust the work that God is doing, and in the working out of our salvation, it must be done with fear and trembling. This is meant to be taken seriously. There's a reverence and sobriety that we ought to be living our lives with. The context of this verse would have us not think that this would be fear of the fear of an unrepentant sinner coming before the throne room of God. But this is the kind of fear and trembling that we must have to ensure that we do not take the grace of God for granted. 
The kind of attitude that we see Paul explicitly say in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, when he says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. My faithful King James readers out there would, would know this to be, God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Choosing obedience is is not a pursuit that allows us to rest on our laurels or to ride the wave of past success in overcoming sin, but it takes a radical commitment to obedience in every area on a moment-by-moment basis. It takes an intentional tweaking of our mindset that turns that job that we hate into a blessing from God and an opportunity to glorify him. It takes our difficult circumstances and changes them instead of something to wallow in, but an opportunity to make much of God. It helps us to see that engaging in that conversation would be sinful and godless and of no benefit to ourselves or others. Helps us to see that that friend or that family member that drives you absolutely crazy and messages you at the most inopportune times is somebody in need of your grace and the love of God in that moment. Helps you to see that when you're home alone, watching that show or hopping on the internet to unrestricted access is at best unwise and at worst completely stupid. and opens you up to a world of sin that It's unwise for you to engage with, or it helps you to see that that relationship is toxic and actually needs some distance. Our whole lives ought to be lived to please the Father, and the more that we choose obedience, the more that we see the need for the grace and the power of God in our lives to bring about the change that we long to see. To bring about the regular choosing of obedience. Because we understand that our pursuit of this is a glorious partnership between us and God. As we bring the willingness and the intentionality to choose Him, and He brings the strength and the power to equip us to fulfill it. But it's not enough that Obedience be just our choice out of obligation or be done begrudgingly. See this next, that I must choose contentment. Back down to God's word to verse 14 and and to one of the top 10 favorite verses of all Christian parents, right? You grew up in a Christian home, guaranteed you heard this verse spoken to you at some point in time. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You see, the terminology that Paul uses here brings comparison for us to that of the actions of the Israelites in the wilderness after God brought them out of Egypt when they grumbled and complained against him, as we see detailed in Exodus 15, 24. And you see, as was exemplified in the Israelites, grumbling and complaining against God is is expressing your displeasure toward his providence in your life. It is to declare that you think the plans and the purposes, the set of circumstances that he has allowed in your life, that he has designated for you, are not good enough and you deserve better. The reality is that chronic complaining 
reveals a heart that is in fact far from God. And as it did for the people of God, the Israelites back in Exodus, it derails our spiritual growth. I mean, just, just, just think about the, the whininess of a child for a moment. You don't even need to be a parent to have had an experience with this. But just think about the, the tone in their voice that, shins, that sends shivers down your spine as their displeasure and disappointment with all they've been given and their sinful sense of entitlement rears its ugly head. You have that moment in your mind? Are you thinking about it? Well, then consider for a moment that that is exactly the way that you act toward God when you grumble and complain against him. We, when we consider the depravity of our own hearts and the reality of what it is that we deserve, when we consider about how awesome the gift of our salvation is, there should be no such thing as whiny Christians. But instead, those who put their complete trust in God and who are content with and in all things, knowing who is sovereignly at work. Our actions and our attitudes ought to reflect the reality of the work that God has and is doing in our lives. So that, verse 15, look down at it again. You may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, as it was impossible for the Philippians, and we know it to be impossible with us, complete perfection in our obedience towards God is impossible, but that does not preclude us from striving to that goal. Our status as children of God is secured in Christ at the moment of conversion, but we should continue in the pursuit of blamelessness in order that we would have nothing that anyone could bring up against us that could disqualify our witness in the world that we live in. Because the call is that Christians are to stand as blameless in a crooked and twisted generation. They are to shine as lights in the world. One of the things that I love to do whenever I have the chance to to be anywhere up north and to get away from the, the lights of city life is to go out in the middle of the night and to look up at the stars. One of the greatest experiences I ever had with that is up in Tobermory. Perhaps you've had a chance to be up there. But it was magnificent to see the innumerable amount of stars in the night sky against the contrast of the blackness of night. An incredible display of the magnificence and beauty of God. And you see, that, that is our witness in the darkness of this world. And that is one of the greatest blessings and joy of our salvation, is getting a chance to be the light of life to those who are walking in darkness. You see, the Apostle Paul understood this, and he was somebody that had every reason to grumble and dispute and complain again about what God was doing. I mean, he wrote this letter to the Philippians from prison. He faced heavy persecution. He was shipwrecked while on mission for God. He had people that he loved completely abandon him. Yet still he gave us the example that we ought to follow when he wrote his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 12, verse 10. He said, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, 
insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Be it the circumstances of our lives, be it our finances, be it our possessions, be it our relationships. Contentedness is the mark of the life of a follower of Christ. It is a requirement of Christian living. And it frees us to live in the joy of our salvation when we're not consumed with the thought or obsessive care over temporal things. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. Living content comes as a result of, first, a thankful heart. When we recognize where our blessings come from, and that results in thankfulness to the one who provides, grumbling and dissatisfaction melt away. When we mindfully thank God for all that he has given to us, it takes our mind off of and our eyes off of what we're missing or what we think we're missing or what others have that we don't and on to the things that God has already given us. And could we not agree that that is more certainly than we deserve and more than we could ever need? Living content also comes as a result of a trusting heart. Trusting that God will provide all that we need helps us be more content with all that he allows to come our way. The God who provides for the flowers of the fields and the birds of the air and who is a good father that loves to give good gifts to his children has already provided for our greatest need, that in the forgiveness of our sins, so we can be sure, we can trust him, that he will provide for our daily needs. Stephen Cole writes that contentment is an inner sense of rest or peace that comes from being right with God and knowing that he is in control of all that happens for us. Contentment comes from a trusting heart. And then finally this, contentment comes from a generous heart. There is no greater antidote to the sin of covetousness than to sacrificially give what you have away. Be it your time, be it your money, be it your possessions. And caring for those in need is not only an act of obedience to the call of God, but it helps us to appreciate all the more what it is that we have been blessed with. Is he choosing an attitude of contentment in God? Frees us to experience the fullness of joy in our salvation, which is the greatest gift of all. Third, see this next. If I'm to experience the full joy of my salvation, I must choose faithfulness. And faithfulness, specifically in two areas, as Paul outlines in verse 16. First, he calls the Philippians to faithfulness in the holding fast to the word of life. Now, the Philippians, of course, had heard the gospel. They had heard the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. But it was not simply the hearing of the word that Paul was concerned with here, but it was to know it, that they would understand it, that they would believe it, and that they would follow it. But as 
The phrase hold fast can also be translated, if you look at the original language, they are also to hold out the word of life for others to see as well, to proclaim the truth of what it is that they believed to the world, to the word around them, as the word of God was to permeate to every aspect of their lives. This would be all-consuming. It was to transform their hearts, to make them more into the people of God that he longed for them to be, so that, Paul goes on to say, in the day of Christ, when Jesus comes again, when the work of Paul's life would be examined as the work of all of our lives will be, he may be proud that he did not run in vain or labor in vain. And here lies the second area of faithfulness that Paul calls his readers to. And that is faithfulness to the work that he has done for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this phrase can kind of sound funny in our ears and it can almost seem like Paul is, is selfishly motivated in saying this, but that they would remain faithful so that he would get the glory. But as, as Paul has clearly outlined throughout the entirety of his ministry, all he does is for Christ. And in fact, he has staked his reputation before God on the growth of churches like the one in Philippi. But his appeal to them in verse 16 is that if they truly love him, if they're truly grateful for the work that he has done for Christ in them, that they would faithfully persevere to the end so that Paul would be able to give all the glory back to God for the work that he did through him in the lives of the Philippians. You know, I have a, a poem that I've pasted to the front of my Bible. It's, uh, it's called A Liturgy Before Taking the Stage. It's written before, for preachers before they get up to preach. Written by a man by the name of Douglas Kane McKelvey. There's one stanza that reads, I offer you all that I have, my talents, my training, the years spent honing, crafting, and creating, my passions, my personality, my history, and then this, the sacrifices that I and others have made in order for me to be here, of which I am a steward. See, there is a responsibility that exists in our walk with the Lord, certainly to be faithful to him and his call, to be obedient, faithful to the word of God as we see here. But there's also a responsibility to be faithful that the work of those who have poured into you have done. For some of you, you're bringing to mind parents, family members, grandparents. For some of you, that's a small group leader a youth group leader that you had years ago. For some of you, that's a pastor or a counselor, or a godly friend, a, a brother or sister in Christ. But as they honored Christ by doing the work that God called them to in mentoring you, in walking with you, in building you up, in pointing you to Jesus, so must we, as those who have benefited in our walk with Jesus by the work that they have faithfully done to the call of God, we too must carry the torch of faithfulness and seek to pass it on to those that God puts in our lives whom we have a chance to influence and impact. 
and endure in our choosing of faithfulness unto the end. And would this not be a great thing for us to choose in this new year? Faithfulness, not only to the word of God, but faithfulness to the work of Christ be our mission in 2020. 2021, I should say. There's the first slip. It was bound to happen. But maybe this year, maybe you've done it before. Maybe you do it every year. Maybe you haven't done it in a while. Would this year, would you commit to reading through the entire, entirety of God's word this year? We've detailed for you in the sermon notes available at hbc.info a number of different Bible reading plans that you can do that take you through the entire year. And there's no excuse not to do it. There's both electronic and paper versions there. So get on it. Or maybe even today or this week, you would send a note, email, text message, a phone call to those people that have been particularly impactful in your life and your walk with Christ to encourage them and to detail for them the way that their faithfulness impacted you. To tell them about what God's been doing in your life since then and give them the opportunity to give glory back to God for the work that he is doing, that they were used for. But faithfulness must be what we choose if we are to continue on the path of sanctification, if we are to trust the process that God is doing in our lives in order that we would realize and experience the full joy of our salvation. Faithfulness, no matter what, brings us to our final choice this morning. If I am to experience the full joy of my salvation, I must choose sacrifice. Down to the last two verses, again, verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You see, the drink offering was a custom in the Old Testament and it expressed devotion in giving God something of value or importance. The pouring out of a drink, which was often a strong drink like wine, for example, was to compound the significance of the offering that people made to the Lord. Not only were they giving him an animal that was without blemish and offering it to him, but they were pouring out, not keeping for themselves, something of value. And in doing so, they expressed their commitment to God. The primary offering to God that Paul is saying here is the faith of the Philippians. And his service to them and for them was the supplemental act toward that in giving glory to God. And his willingness to sacrificially pour himself out in humble service so that the Philippian believers may grow and live in their faith is what he is talking about here. As in the ritual of sacrifice, the animal that was sacrificed to God was of primary importance and the drink offering was of supplemental significance. Verse 17 is detailing for us Paul's attitude toward the mission that he was on. That he considers himself and his life of secondary importance to the development of deeper faith in the lives of those he loved. I would be glad, I would rejoice in the chance to lay down my life, to sacrifice myself, to pour myself out unto death so that your faith, your growth, your sanctification may be furthered for God's glory, Paul says. 
And he encourages them to do the same. To do it with joy. And to rejoice in the sharing of the sacrificial service as this was the joy of Christ. Our perfect example. To sacrifice himself and to pour himself out for others. And so it was for Jesus. So it was for Paul. So it should be for us. A willingness to lay it all down. Our desires, our wants, even our needs, even our very life, to be of secondary importance in light of the work that God wants to do in this world. Not a willingness out of obligation. A willingness that comes from joy. Joy out of the opportunity to do so. And to so be aligned with Christ. Because it is in the sacrifice of ourselves before God that we can realize the joy of being called by him. Of being counted as blessed to suffer for him and to sacrifice everything in our lives for him. Time may come when we, as Canadian Christians, are called to truly suffer and to truly sacrifice for the gospel, but that is not yet here. Although some have made the distinction to call the restrictions on churches during COVID-19 persecution, it is not, in fact. I would hardly even call this suffering. As much as I long for the day when this room can be filled, when the voices of hundreds of people can be lifted high together in praise and glory to God, we are called to sacrifice the gathering together in person for a short time, relatively speaking, so that we may keep the vulnerable safe, that we may preserve our witness to this world by doing exactly what Paul says later in this letter, by letting our reasonableness be known to everyone, then let it be so. And let us rejoice in the sovereignty of God who is building his church. But as we have the chance to sacrifice, to share in Christ's sufferings by pouring ourselves out, we should count ourselves blessed. We should be living ready to choose sacrifice. These are the choices required of us if we are to experience the full joy of our salvation. So are you trusting God's process? Are you committing to choose obedience, contentment, faithfulness, and sacrifice? Or are you living on your own program? Well, this morning, we have the chance to observe the Lord's table together. If you haven't done so already, now would be a great time to grab the elements, a bread or cracker, a juice of some kind. But to take communion is the chance to remember Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. The broken body and the shed blood for us. This is the act by which we remember what it is that Jesus did for us and what that means. He is the way of salvation. 
the way to receive the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life and the subsequent joy that comes with that. And every time we take the table, we are reminded of the work that he did for us and the sanctifying work that is ongoing within each of us. The time of sober remembrance, a time to reconcile with God as we are warned in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 29, that whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. As we've heard from God's word this morning and as we come to the Lord's table now, Take a moment and reflect on your walk with the Lord. Have you forsaken the work that God wants you to do? Have you been living in the ways of your own sinfulness? Pursuing your own process and the passions of this world? Take this time to confess your sins before him. Begin the process of repentance lest you bring judgment upon yourself. Take some time now to pray before we come to the table, which I will lead us through in a few moments. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then this time is not for you. But it doesn't have to be that way. In this moment, the offer of salvation is extended to you. All you need to do is take it. Cry out to the Lord, admitting your sinfulness before him. Ask for forgiveness and ask him to be Lord of your life. Do that right now, wherever you are. If you'd like some help with that, if you'd like somebody to lead you through that, we have leaders available by pressing the request prayer button. Spend some time in prayer now, church family. I'll come back to lead us through the Lord's table in a moment. he was betrayed Jesus took bread after giving thanks he broke it 
said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together with thankful hearts. same way he took the cup after supper saying this cup the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me bring together church with thankful hearts For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, we first express our deep gratitude for the work that you have done in our salvation. God, we recognize our depravity before you, the reality that there is nothing that we could ever do or have done to resolve our greatest need, to restore our broken relationship with you and to receive the forgiveness of sins that separates from you. So Father, we cannot say anything else but thank you. And we cannot do anything else but respond to this truth and in full joy commit to living for you in every area of our lives. So, Father, would you do the work in us by your Spirit to mold us, to shape us, to break us if need be, in order that we be made more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ? Would you do the work, God, of renewing our minds that we may, in every area of every moment of our lives, pursue and choose obedience? Dwelling on you and dwelling in you in all that we do. Father, we pray that you would help us to see that the gift of salvation is the greatest gift that we could ever receive. And would that motivate us to live a life of contentment, joyfully appreciating all that you have given to us and recognizing, trusting that you are leading us through all things in complete control. God, we pray that you would find us to be a people who choose faithfulness. That as Christ himself, our perfect example, our Savior and Lord, exemplified faithfulness perfectly in leaving the glory of the throne room of God to come down to this earth, may we also commit in all things to being faithful with a sacrificial mindset, willing to lay it all on the line for you. Because you, Jesus, did that perfectly for us. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy in our lives, your patience with us, as we know this will never be something that we accomplish perfectly, but we know this is a process we can trust because you are a God we can trust. So do all of this for your glory, for your fame, for the advancement of the gospel in this world. We pray all of this in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.